You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the season two finale of Living Healthy Longer. As the host of this show, I personally cannot believe it's been two and a half years since I started planning this podcast. Prior to this show, I didn't know anything about audio production or podcast distribution. So it has been a learning curve for sure. Yet it is also my favorite thing that I get to do in my job. So I just want to take a moment to thank my team here at the center, our director, Nicole Earhart, for finding value in these conversations and letting me continue to bring them to you. So just like last year, we have a compilation episode for you today from our guest perspectives on what makes them most excited for the future of aging studies. Yes, this is the standing question I asked every guest of season two, and now we're going to review and get a consensus. Where is aging research going and what makes our affiliate faculty hopeful? I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. First up is Dr. Jen Curran McCulloch, a social worker at CSU, from our episode about communication and meaning making at end of life. This is exciting, super exciting time for me. Super exciting time to be in Colorado for end of life work as as a social worker. Um, Many of you may know and may hear about uh, medical aid in dying or looking at uh, the Colorado End of Life Options Act. This started back in the 90s in uh, Oregon and little pieces and parts of our country are starting to move towards legislation that provides people the opportunity to say, if they have a terminal illness, to ask their doctor if they would agree to help provide them a prescription that they could take when the time felt right, if they wanted to, um, that could ease them into death at a time that they felt was right. Um, This choice is obviously not for everyone for many different reasons. But for me and somebody that looks at quality of life and this existential meaning-making quality of life, how amazing is it to have the opportunity to actually be able to say, this is how I want my days of life to be, and this is how I want my last day of life to be. I was not able to do that. I lived in a state um, with my father at the time, lived in a state I lived here, but lived where it was not an option, and I watched him suffer for 11 years. And so for me, I see this opportunity as, as a child, as a loved one, to have somebody to be able to plan. You know, Maybe you wanna have a celebration and a party, you know, I've just heard such beautiful stories about family members being there and, and having photos and flowers and all those cherished moments and to be able to see somebody, you know, in the last moment, one minute for many people after they took their medication to just close their eyes and rest peacefully. Um, that That's where I'm interested in going in the next couple of years to see how we can give the best last moment of life. Maria Delgado, 
an assistant professor of design and merchandising from our episode on aging in place and home accessibility. I get excited about a lot of things. Um, And one of the things, since I teach in the design and merchandising department, and I specifically teach in the interior architecture program at CSU. Um, And I'm also faculty affiliated with the Nancy Richardson Design Center, which is a very, it's a new building, very innovative techniques. um, And they promote a lot about design thinking and human-centered design. And one of the classes uh, that I teach in the architecture program is a 3D modeling course. So I'm responsible for making sure that these students know how to utilize Revit, which is a parametric building program. Um, And in what's nice about it is I also, the the course that I teach in at the RDC um, is the capstone transdisciplinary um, course where we have students that are all different majors working together to problem solve. And it just so happened that um, last year's project, the students used, we had interior architecture students along with a wealth of other majors, I think almost 10 different majors um, across campus, they all work together to design and build a tiny house on wheels. (laughs) It was amazing. It was a three credit class, which probably should have been like a 12 credit class. (laughs) But the students worked so hard and, you know, they built a home that was actually sold to CSU alumni a couple that um, is living in the home. And so to me, I think when I think about the future, I think, you know, I'm a teacher. So I think it's so much about educating, educating our students, um, educating the public about how these concepts can, um, can be impactful. And, you know, not everyone may benefit from this, you know, not everyone, people, I like to think you always need to pick and choose what benefits you. Um, but I think awareness is really critical because if you're not aware, you don't, you don't have that choice to make. Um, so I'm just really excited to be able to um, have this avenue and kind of vehicle, no pun intended, <laughs> that's kidding, pun intended, um, of the tiny house on wheels that, you know, now we're looking through, through it, through an affordable lens and through it, um, through an accessible lens and a sustainable lens um, to, again, just be able to promote um, how can we, how can we create alternative housing solutions for Coloradoans? And taking it a step further, um, just because I've always been so interested in in policy and and thinking about could tiny homes in the future be considered accessory dwelling units? Um, tiny homes on wheels could they be again accessory dwelling units that? Uh, you know, again, we'd need amendments and land use code updates to be changed and uh, amended. But if they were, the potential that it could bring to communities is if you have an older adult that's living in a bigger home that wants to maybe have a live-in nurse come and that nurse could live in that accessory dwelling unit, or maybe um, you, the, the older adult wants to actually move into the accessory dwelling unit and rent out um, their home for you know, passive income. So so many different potential reasons why it could benefit. And, and again, it's up to constituents to think about local um, governments to think about what is best for their um, towns. And, um, you know, but they, I think there's so much potential that it could, this idea of 
accessibility and these concepts of tiny houses on wheels and accessible tiny houses on wheels can bring a lot of growth and um, and an opportunity for for Coloradoans. So it just the the idea of um, you know these concepts being maximized and shared and and really materialized and coming coming to fruition makes me super excited. Kelly Hall, an associate professor of emergency and critical care from our episode Trauma from Dogs to People. You know, at the core of everything around the veterinary trauma initiative is improving trauma patient outcomes. That is our goal. And I actually have a slide, any presentation I give that has people with their animals. And our goal is to get those animals back to their day-to-day lives, whether that's a working dog, military, police, or a companion animal and with their family. Because I think the evidence to support the impact that animals have on our lives is so strong. So that whole human animal bond and trauma is common and it happens in people, it happens in animals. So our job in the trauma space is to work as hard as we can to get those patients that sustain injury back to their families and allow, you know, make sure that human animal bond has more time, that they have more time together. And we are really committed to getting those tools and having that research. This isn't just us at CSU and it's not just critical care. Our efforts are around getting the tools in the hands of our general practitioners, first responders, et cetera. It's a huge ask, um, but it's really fun to see it moving along. And from the aging standpoint, the sooner we can get our animals back into our lives so that we can continue to grow grow with them, whether through aging or otherwise, um, I think that's a win for both people and pets. Next is James DeGregori a professor in the University of Colorado School of Medicine, from the episode titled Cancer and Aging. I I think what makes me most excited is I think people coming around to this idea that it's not simple and that there's a lot of interconnections uh, between these different processes. And I think, you know, because before it was, you know, even with both aging and cancer, People really had this simplistic notation it's, uh, uh, that it's just the accumulation of mutations. And of course, those play a role, but they're one player. And, you know, if that was it, then, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. I mean, except for not smoking or, you know, avoiding mutagens, we are going to accumulate mutations as we get older. And so that was sort of a, a depressing idea. But I think as we've come to understand that it's more complex and, you know, that there's all these interactions between these different systems, we could start to, I think, better appreciate mechanisms where we might be able to intervene and we might be able to slow this process or like we talked about, at least extend out the health span. Um, So I think that's, I think, very exciting. And I think another thing that I think we're going to really need to consider is the equity issue. I think if we were just to come up with a a pill that someone could take that's going to extend their lifespan and that pill cost $100,000, you know, that's going to mean, you know, Jeff Bezos and a few other people are going to be able to take the pill and live longer. And that's not fair and equitable. So the better we understand these processes and the better we understand how diet, exercise and, you know, for example, with diet, there may be that there are specific diets that are good at extending lifespan. I mean, right now, I'd say the simplest advice is eat a balanced diet with lots of fruits and vegetables. 
beyond that is just the details. But let's say that we find that having a cup of blueberries once a week actually does extend lifespan and so forth. That might be something that's more accessible to a broader community. And maybe blueberries is a bad idea because actually for much of the world, they probably could not get blueberries. But anyway, I think you see where I'm going with this is that we're hopefully going to come up with a solution that's not only going to address this complexity, but also could be more widely distributed. Audrey Rupel, a veterinary epidemiologist on the Dog Aging Project, from our episode on big data and health inequities in translational medicine. Yeah, I think that the thing I'm most excited about is it feels like we're really at a place where we're making differences, where it's not just about increasing lifespan, so helping us all to live longer lives, but really to help us live healthier lives. I think we're here. I think we're at a place where we're starting to really get into the nitty gritty, where it's not just about how do we keep our bodies functioning and breathing and hearts beating, but also how are we, how's our quality of life going to be well? Like how do we keep ourselves well for as long as we're alive? Um, I really feel like we're here. I feel like we've arrived. And I feel like this era of big data, this is this is going to be a very informative one. So I'm really looking forward to the next couple of decades and seeing what we can do. Gwen Fisher, an associate professor and researcher in CSU's Occupational Health Psychology Lab from the episode on an aging workforce and the future of work. Sure. So two things. First of all, I think it's interesting to see just the complex, large number of factors that exist and how what we experience at work, at home, with our family, whether that's with our immediate family or maybe our grandparents, as you mentioned, uh, in our community, in our society, and then the economy on a broader level, how factors at all those different levels and all those different areas really come together to impact the aging process, our understanding of aging, as well as demography, health, uh, patterns of retirement. And, and it'll be interesting to see as these factors shift over time, what does that mean? Um, it's difficult to predict what, uh, what retirement in the workforce is going to look like in another five or 10 years, simply because I don't think um, 25 months ago, any of us would have predicted what happened with regard to to COVID and the pandemic. Um, Back to your question, the other one is simply that we're all aging. This isn't just something that affects old people, but it's it's all of us and it's a, a lifelong process. And so by studying aging and this area of research, hopefully we can aim to improve health and well-being for all people and hopefully in time with the knowledge that we gain from research and, and applying it in practical settings, that we can help people live high quality lives and, and do our best to maintain our functioning for as long as we can. Dr. Eric Chess, a physician, lawyer, and the director of the Paul Freeman Financial Security Program at the University of Denver's Noble Institute for Healthy Aging from our episode on financial security and cognitive health. There's there's a lot to be excited about. You know, we all have our own perspectives on this. Um, for me, having worked, you know, many years on the clinical side and now at the University of Denver, I've definitely seen many of these intertwined issues that affect uh, older adults and the aging process from chronic disease, stress to finances, 
social isolation. You know, in my program, we 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 really enjoy thinking outside of the box by uh, you know identifying that banks and credit card companies, investment firms. Uh, financial planners are actually on the front lines of cognitive impairment. Um, that That's kind of an, uh, an out-of-the-box type of uh, endeavor. But as a whole, in the aging research area, we're collaborating much more than ever, you know, than, than ever before. Um, within institutions, so, you know, at the University of Denver, for, for me, across all these different departments, but also beyond our own academic institution with outside organizations, nonprofits, for-profits, private industry. You know, I feel like I'm part of uh, an incredible team of smart and passionate people whose mission is to create impactful change in the lives of older adults. What excites me the most is the number of uh, amazing people who are committed to providing impact in so many different ways. And, you know, Hannah, I'd I'd tell you that uh, th- that includes you and uh, your team at CSU. There's a warm, welcoming, collaborative spirit in the work that we're all doing. And this podcast is such a fantastic example of sharing knowledge, information in an in a inclusive, um, creative, and impactful way. So I think for me, the most exciting thing is being part of this team and uh, this very large team of people who all have this shared mission. Nicole Earhart, director of the center, from our episode on regenerative medicine and stem cell therapy. I love this question. Um, I think that the list of things I'm not excited about would be shorter than the list of things that I am excited about. But you asked me what's the most exciting, so I'll try to answer that. I feel like the most exciting part of it is that we now have such a deeper understanding of the mechanisms that drive aging. And even in the last 10 years, the ability for us to show that if we target any of those very fundamental mechanisms that we can reverse aging changes or we can slow aging changes. I talked about stem cell exhaustion, which is one of the hallmarks of aging, but there are people doing extremely very impactful work in all the hallmarks of aging. And that is happening simultaneously. So to me, the most exciting thing about aging research from my perspective is that there are so many different ways we can target this and we're being successful, um, you know, in the laboratory that something is going to shake out. That's really going to make a difference in the next 10 years. Um, And I believe that, you know, EVs are one of those things that are on the cusp of, you know, kind of becoming that next big thing. There are other aspects of, you know, people's work that I also find extremely exciting and kind of near horizon. So to me, I feel like I want to be, you know, in my lifetime, I want to squarely be in that kind of horizon of now all of a sudden we have longevity therapeutics that are working in people and are safe and effective and we're really extending health span. Jody Waterhouse, the director of outreach programs at the University of Colorado Anschutz Multidisciplinary Center on Aging, from our episode about state policies that advocate for better older adult health care. 
You are exactly right. I'm not a researcher, but yet surrounded um, by brilliant uh, researchers. And um, what, what makes me most excited, certainly about their work and the work that all of our you know, higher ed institutions are engaged in, um, is that research isn't just you know, we think of it as being very grounded in the basic sciences. And um, for instance, you know, through the Center on Aging, we have a robust offering of um, basic science physiology of aging research, of which they're doing incredible work. And so taking that, but also expanding um, research into very non-traditional areas. Um, that's really exciting um, for our work because some of the other initiatives that I didn't mention as we were discussing some of the initiatives we're working on, for instance, we have a big grant um, that we're working with uh, one of our clinicians around dementia and firearms. Um, so proper storage of firearms um, as we age and making sure that they don't get into the wrong hands. Um, we also have done um, extensive research in the area of advanced care planning and um, working with LGBTQ communities on some of those difficult conversations that um, people have when encouraging um, friends, family, community members to fill out advanced care directives so that their wishes um, will be met um, when the time comes. So those are just some other examples. And then the initiatives I talked about earlier are all grant related um, and have a research component. So, so research isn't necessarily just grounded in the, the health sciences, the basic sciences, like we all think about it, but it's, it's a, a playground of just incredible creativity and new innovations um, that every day um, folks um, are working on how can we make aging um, uh, better in the way of, you know, can we do it in a more healthy way? Do we have the appropriate innovations and technologies to help support our aging? That's going on all around us. And at campuses like CU and CSU, um, brilliant minds are, are all figuring that out. So, so certainly from my standpoint, taking that research in many different types of areas um, and in translating that um, back maybe into an advocacy piece um, is super exciting. Um, and, you know, just look forward to the future of what other creative things are we gonna come up with that potentially we can um, translate into um, uh, advocacy more in, in implementation and not just kind of talk about, you know, pie in the sky type ideas. So we're, we're in for a really fun ride. Um, aging is a gift um, and we all need to look at it like that. And being, you know, here and now, um, boy, I think the next, you know, 50 years um, are going to be pretty darn exciting. Um, for what we're going to have available to all of us as we age. Adela Chen, an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Information Systems from our episode, Lifespan Technology Use. I, I feel most excited for, uh, you know, for the future of aging research. It's mainly about the 
increasing attention to healthy aging that we see today. Um, and you know, from from my uh, from my area, um, see, technology has dominated many aspects of our life. No matter the stage in life, a lot of attention has been paid to technologies in the workplace, uh, which I can understand because clearly, technology use at the workplace has this productivity related implications. But you know, what about people who are no longer in the workforce? I think more research is really needed to understand how technology can help our aging population and how older adults use technology. Um, there, there's really no simple answer to questions like these because what works for one group may not work for the other. And the differentiation may not be based on or solely based on age groups. So it kind of boils down to a deep understanding of the target population, their needs, their limitations, their experiences. Um, and also, it will be exciting to see how the latest technologies, such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, can contribute to healthy learning. We have a lot of research or discussion around how these technologies, the latest technologies, can be used at workplace in uh, enhancing productivity. But I would love to see how those technologies can help uh, our, our aging population um, to enhance the efficiency and effectiveness of how they go about in their daily life. Um, and I, I, as I said earlier, I believe this is not a simple equation, right? There's no simple recipe for you to figure out. So it will be um, exciting to be involved in a cross-disciplinary longitudinal study. This is kind of my dream study as a scholar. Um, I, I wish to study the impact of technology use on people across their life stages. Not, you know, longitudinal in terms of uh, three months or a year, it's much longer. And if, you know, there, there's opportunity to be able to follow the participants through their life stages to have a more complete view of the change, evolution of their needs, their wants, their limitations, their capabilities, and how life experience shape all these factors. I think that would be fascinating. And I believe those different perspectives will definitely help paint a more complete picture of what healthy aging looks like or should look like. Tom LaRocca, an assistant professor of health and exercise science and a center faculty member from our episode about the bioaging study and repetitive elements in the genome. I really think that the there's so much great work going on, regardless of our particular interests in the repetitive elements and the omics that are involved there. There's there's so much great work going on looking for biomarkers like that and trying to validate them at the same time as there are these pretty cool trials that people are trying to push forward testing. Uh, drugs that might be bona fide anti-aging drugs. And I, I think I think we're not too far off from a point at which we might have some really good reproducible biomarkers and some treatments that we could use, just like I described before, 
to target or improve biological aging and health span in the folks who have demonstrably advanced biological age based on these these biomarkers of aging. So I think it's just really cool the way um, people are, are, are really pushing those two fronts forward, in, in many cases separately, but in parallel. And then there are some you know studies where people are actually doing both and they're doing uh, measuring biomarkers and, and trying to um, actually testing some of these drugs that might be candidates for, for therapeutics. Jacqueline Stevens and Arlene Schmid, faculty in CSU's Department of Occupational Therapy, from our episode on yoga as a treatment for disability and chronic brain injury. Everyone is susceptible to brain injury, which is a really scary and crummy kind of thing to have. But if we can understand how the brain is and then recovers, and the more and more that we do this, we, we can make these huge strides in science. So anytime we do a study where we look at people with brain injury, either either before and after an intervention or just at one time point, we just learn so much more. And we move that needle a little bit further and we make it easier for those who are um, providers for people with brain injury to really feel like what they're doing is meaningful. Because I remember when I was a clinician working with brain injury, I'm like, I really hope what I'm doing is helping, you know, because the brain is brain is really smart. If you train one area, it's going to take from another. So we really want to make sure that we're providing things that are great for these people, that are meaningful for these people, and that their brains are changing in a way that's healthy and adaptive and is going to support their long-term health. Lisa Morgan, an instructor in CSU's School of Music, Theater, and Dance, from our episode on connecting through dance and the cognitive benefits of movement through dance. Mm, it's a great question. I, the collaboration piece is, is huge for me. And I also feel like that's where we can learn the most from each other and also can present the most um, effective and far-reaching work um, to the populations that benefit from the work. Um, and I think in terms of bringing the arts into the science world, it's, it's the collaboration of the arts and sciences that gets me the most excited. It's amazing to have, even in the music therapy world, because the, it can be very scientific, and when there's those little light bulbs that go off and the magic happens with music and movement and, and then what's happening neurologically in some of these participants that are, that are dealing with Parkinson's or living with Parkinson's, those moments are, are what really excite me to move forward and to create more collaborative experiences for people. And finally, Dean Lisa Youngblade and Dr. Nicole Earhart, the interim and current directors of the Center for Healthy Aging, from our latest episode about women as leaders in science. I'm going to start and say what I'm most excited about is, is the leadership of our Center for Healthy Aging. Um, I, I am. I, uh, you know, I had the privilege, reluctantly, of serving as interim director 
because we could not find the right director. And I actually remember the moment in which we found it. Um, Barry Braun, who's our department head from Health and Exercise Science, and I were at a seminar. We had a seminar series, and I, can't, I don't even remember who the, the person was that was speaking. But uh, this person showed up that we hadn't seen before, one Nicole Earhart. <laughs> and um, we didn't know who she was, but she was sitting there. And then she asked a question. And I remember looking at Barry at the same time, like with this, like, do you know who that is? No, do you? Like that kind of communication. And, um, and she continued to ask some really good questions. And then we said hello, and she left. And we were like, we have got to get her for the director. And we were just getting ready to launch the search again. So I, I remember that just being so impressed oh. by your uh, and I, I, I wish I remembered who the speaker was but I can't hmm. I, I remember that like glance I remember that uh, look and now I can't remember what your question was <laughs> <laughs> uh, where um, aging oh, research where it's going. so yes yeah, so really excited about where it's going and you know to harken back to our earlier conversation about that translational um, that is so unique to this Center for Healthy Aging I think if you look and I haven't looked for a while, but I, I know when we were building the center, it took a, a, a deep look across um, the country. There isn't a center that is um, centered in that intersection like this one is. And I think that's the incredible strength going forward. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, because I think if there is one place where there used to be a gap in the aging research field, it was this kind of bridge between um, how do you move between uh, you know what we were learning about and basic biology of aging and um, and making that a reality for human populations in terms of how do we create interventions um, that might actually improve the process uh, of and just help us all age in a more healthy man manner. Um, and CSU has this world class veterinary college. And we're a relatively new aging center as compared to those that have been in existence for 30 plus years, like the Buck and MIT has one, et cetera. But the fact that we have this world-class veterinary college and um, this concept of um, this very powerful model of these companion animals that live in our environments and age just as we do, and yet they have shorter lifespans and a more, um, you know, a, a quicker progression of disease, et cetera, that allow us to study that in, an, in a setting that is so much more mimicking the process of human aging is a real advantage. And it's a distinguisher among our, our other aging center um, colleagues um, that we have something that w we can really bring to the table that other places don't have. So that's certainly exciting. On a broader scale, though, I think I can very honestly say that the concept of, that we pull together from every college in every pretty much every department, um, faculty that have a passion about this and are willing to be um, part of our center <laughs> is something that's really exciting for me. So I just look forward to these fresh perspectives that people are going to bring and, um, and really starting to look at different interdisciplinary teams that I think are going to be very high impact. So there you have it. Season two concludes with 14 episodes with researchers from across disciplines and colleges at CSU and beyond. Thank you so much to our guests for coming on the show and sharing their expertise with us. Living Healthy Longer is not taking a break, so season three will release in just a few short weeks. Happy New Year, everyone. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.